Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing Africa and the World Cup with Jonathan Leggard, Eastern Africa correspondent for The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and we are broadcasting live from Dallas this afternoon. Joining us are World Affairs Council members from Connecticut, Ohio, California, Texas, and many other states. Global IQ is another benefit of your council membership, and also listening are members of the Economic Club of Minnesota. We welcome clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. You may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us through the online form. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world's leader in private clubs. For more information on these companies, visit TexasCapitalBank.com or ClubCorps.com. This program would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. Jonathan Ledgard is Eastern Africa correspondent for The Economist and a senior contributing writer to Intelligent Life. He joined the magazine in 1996 and has been resident correspondent in Texas, Austin, Eastern Europe, and Afghanistan, where he was based in Kabul. Just recently, Jonathan led an Economist.com debate on the merits of foreign intervention in Somalia and has published a novel on the country called Giraffe. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right started. In the New Year's address um, just a few months ago, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma described 2010 as the most important year in our country since 1994, the year when apartheid was rejected and the country's first fully democratic elections brought about a black majority government. You might say until the World Cup, when South Africa was covered and mentioned in the news, it was usually in relation to violent crime or HIV-AIDS. Leading up to this World Cup, which is the first in Africa, there's been a lot of hype about the mega event, saying that it might bring significant payoffs in investment, tourism, and perhaps intangible benefits such as an improvement in the country's brand or reputation and a much-needed catalyst for economic growth. Well, we're now, I guess, entering the third week of the World Cup. Is it meeting these goals? I would say it is, actually. Um, I think... um Obviously, before the World Cup, we had um, deep worries uh, about terrorist threats, uh, particularly from the Somali al-Shabaab group. Uh, that was a big worry. Uh, another worry was uh, that there would be some horrific crime incidents. Maybe some uh, football tourists uh, would be carjacked. Um, another worry was that the public transport system or the accommodations uh, wouldn't be up to scratch, but all, all of those worries so far, such would, um, have not been realized. So I think uh, what we're seeing at the moment is that South Africa is quite a competitive economy and uh, quite capable of, of hosting an event of the magnitude of the World Cup. What about the economic uh, gains? I was reading an early report, 2008, prepared by Grant Thornton, where they predicted that the World Cup could inject close to $8 billion into the economy. Um, I think they cited as well that there'd be nearly uh, um, half a million foreign tourists and, and lots of new jobs. Um, are, are, are these goals being reached? I think uh, it's obviously a very contentious area, and... Um without wanting to sit on the fence too much, I think we're going to have to wait five or ten years 
to see what the lasting effect of the World Cup will be. But I think we can say some things. The South African government has been more progressive and smarter about leveraging the tournament than, than for example, Athens was uh, in running the Olympics. Um, I think uh, if you go to Johannesburg now, you'll be very struck by the vast improvements in public infrastructure. Um, and that is a key thing for South African cities. Another key thing for South Africa is um, uh, increasing regionalization. Um, the, the country, is, as you know, is, is quite a large country, and uh, from a foreign perspective, it's been dominated by Johannesburg and Cape Town especially. Uh, what you've seen in the World Cup is a really strong effort to decentralize uh, and get the tournament out to some provincial capitals like Rustenburg and Port Elizabeth and especially Durban on the Indian Ocean. And the hope is that, um, for example, Durban now has uh, a new international airport, so there will be direct flights from India and from the Middle East and from other parts of Africa uh, to Durban. Um, and, and the hope is that, that that might engender some more economic growth. Um, what, what everyone knows and what the World Cup organizers themselves admit is that the World Cup in, in and of itself is not a silver bullet um, for, you know, what is a, a really ailing economy. Um, but, but they hope that it, 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 it's sort of benchmark to to regain confidence in, in the country, uh, which has been flagging. And, uh, as you, most of your listeners will know, there's been a lot of uh, white flight and, uh, and also immigration of black South Africans of, of from middle-class backgrounds and Asians from middle-class backgrounds. And, and that's kind of devastated particularly the civil, civil service sector in, in South Africa. So there's a hope that maybe this will stop the rot and and get um, you know uh, a more confident, dynamic, and outward-looking South Africa. And the final point on that, um, which I think might be the most significant, is there is a tendency in, in the states or in Europe to to think about you know what's in South Africa for us. And I think that's probably slightly misplaced. I think what, if there is a tangible effect from the World Cup, it will be to grow um, trade within Africa, and especially, even more so, to put South Africa in a South-South context. So you'll see more direct flights to Argentina, more direct flights to Brazil, a lot more investment from India, um, and and I think that, really could be a, a step forward for South Africa. And, and uh, as you were saying, I think they're actually playing the matches in, in nine cities, aren't they? I think that this is, um, obviously um, the World Cup is much more popular in the States than it, than it used to be, but still a lot of Americans don't appreciate that, um, that the World Cup is fundamentally different from uh, the Olympics in that although in one sense, it's a lot more simple. You just build a football stadium, there's one football pitch, and uh, a lot of football fans, so it's a lot less complex in the Olympics. 
but it has a, a much larger potential to grow a, a country uh, because um, you know it, it's not centered just in one city, but but right across the country. One of the things I wanted to explore is I, w I was reading that FIFA, the international governing body of, of football, uh, or soccer, of course, as we call it here, kept very tight control over the, the competition from other vendors. And you know, I, I understand they were trying to protect their sponsors like McDonald's or, or Coca-Cola, but some of the press clippings I saw from South Africa indicated that some of the local vendors uh, felt that they had been uh, sort of marginalized and, and, and pushed away. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And again, this is another contentious area. I think FIFA is probably uh, on the side of, of protecting its large corporate sponsors. And it should be emphasized that these sponsors are really large. If you're having a global tournament, uh, which is capturing 40 to 50 percent of TV viewership around the world for a month, uh, then obviously the investment that those companies are going to make is very, very large. Um, but at the same time, there, there is a sense in which the World Cup is really Africa-like, that the hawkers, the informal vendors um, who, you know, are intrinsic to an African economy, even an advanced African economy like South Africa, these people have been pushed aside perhaps a little bit too much. Well, viewership in the United States, I suspect, will go down a little bit after last Saturday's game, and perhaps the same in the in the UK. But um, how has attendance been at, at the at, at the Cup? Well, it's certainly not disastrous. I mean, uh, and one heartening thing is uh, one of the big worries before the World Cup was that the crowds would look overwhelmingly white. That say, you know, it would just be foreign. Uh, football tourists uh, and uh, white South Africans who generally are obsessed with rugby union and not with football. Uh, but actually, the crowds, racially speaking, have been quite mixed. That's been positive. But clearly, FIFA made a massive mistake and a massive error in judgment um, in not uh, more imaginatively and creatively finding ways to sell blocks of tickets to black South Africans, but particularly to Africans from other countries. Um, I think um, the estimate is only about 40,000 of a million or so people going to games will uh, be coming from other African countries, and that's simply not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the first questions we have is from Lisa, and she says, what was the crimes uh, situation regarding World Cup activities? Uh, has it been more or less than expected? And I'd like to ask you to touch upon the uh, um, very quick justice that uh, South Africa has put in place uh, for, for the World Cup. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think we have to say that <clears throat> so far, I say we're only halfway through the tournament, uh, but um, so far the crime situation has been pretty good um, and uh, the, the, the rapid uh, justice system that was put in place was, was announced well beforehand and with the support of an uh, overwhelming majority of the South African people. So I, I think so far... Uh, we haven't seen the grisly headlines, which which really could have marred the image of South Africa. Um, 
There's no question, however, that South Africa is is the most violent, um, along with Brazil, the most violent, uh, semi-developed country in the world, and and that and that violent crime uh, is, is devastating to the country, and uh, and large parts of the uh, population are, are traumatized uh, by the extremely high murder rate. Uh, but in the context of the World Cup, I'd have to say, so far, again, it's been pretty positive. Well, well tell us about these special courts that have been set up. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, basically, uh, all they're doing is, um, they're not doing anything um, which is judicially incorrect. All they're doing is prioritizing uh, the crime so that, if, for example, you were a group of uh, American uh, soccer fans who were in South Africa and one of you got held up at gunpoint, uh, obviously you have to get home soon, so they accelerate the judicial process if they can find um, the accused. Uh, and then there's a two course of justice, but... Uh, but the whole point is uh, to, as it were, put the, the regular judicial system to one side, and so you're not waiting two or three months for a, for a verdict, and then if you are a victim, you're going to get attended to quite quickly. Yeah, you touched on this a moment ago, but I, I was surprised just how horrendous the crime is in South Africa, and I believe I've read that less than 15% of murders are actually uh, solved, and uh, uh, that, that obviously creates a lot of um, concern and uncertainty for companies that are thinking about investing in South Africa. Uh, what are really the roots for this crime, and what can South Africa do to get on top of it? Well, South Africa knows uh, that there are two main avenues for solving the crime situation. One is um, you know, elevating the station of, of uh, people living in the townships so that the unemployment rate comes down to manageable levels and uh, protecting particularly the rights of women in townships. Uh, much of the crime is directed... Uh, towards women in, in townships, extraordinary amounts of rape uh, and, and violent abuse which go on. Um, so clearly uh, there has to be, and the South African government has thought very carefully about how they try and reach out in, in these communities. Uh, that's one side of it. The other side of it is, you know, just better policing and better detective work and uh, you know, that's a huge challenge, but um, I think um, the World Cup, if it has one lasting benefit to the crime situation, it has been to train up something over 10,000 new police, policemen and policewomen who can, who can be a lasting legacy of the World Cup, who can actually, uh, you know, just have more cops on the beat um, who are actually going to interdict uh, and sit at junctions late at night, and a lot of carjackings are happening when people are driving home after dark. If, if you can have more, you know, a, 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 a greater police presence, uh, then you're uh, going to sort of reduce the crime numbers. But again, there's no 
easy fix to, to that situation and is uh, along with the uh, problems facing the ANC politically, these are the two uh, key issues that South Africa has to solve if it's going to move from being you know, an advanced African country to being a, a, a truly developed uh, nation. I want to remind our listeners that they can send questions on the online forum in the auditorium and also mention that if you'd like to read more about South Africa, there's a special report that was written by Jonathan that was published in The Economist on June 5th of this year, The Price of Freedom. And you can certainly download that from The Economist website. And when I was reading it, there was a figure that just really astonished me, and, and, and you touched on the number of women that have been raped, but 28% of men you cited, 28% aged men aged between the age of 18 and 49 had admitted to at least one rape, and 40% of the women said that their first sexual experience was rape. So, I mean, I'm just a, a quick footnote, uh, Jim, um, I, I'm very happy to take credit for other people's good work, but... In that case, the, the report was written by my colleague Diana, um, uh, uh, who uh, I would be aggrieved if I <laughs> oh, correct you on, on, on the report. Um, but on, 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 the, on the question of rape, uh, I mean, there are there are there is a lot of studies and a lot of research going on. Just why is uh, that society so very very violent and? And, and sexually violent as well, and very predatory. Um, uh, and again, there are not that many definitive findings. Some of the more controversial ones would point um, to dividing up the country into different ethnic groups, and you would find that the Zosa uh, and Zulu peoples um, would have much higher uh, rates of uh, rape and uh, uh, the Bokutswana uh, and, uh, and uh, maybe the colored, cape, uh, colored people, uh, probably slightly less so. Um, but uh, it's, again, it's just one of those really complicated and uh, truly terrifying statistics. Let's, let's talk about the economy for a moment. Uh, a recurring theme in most anything you read about South Africa is that it's a country of severe contrast. Uh, can you elaborate on why this is uh, so? Well, I think if we can leave our listenership with one who, obviously many of our listeners will have been to South Africa so they can make their own judgments, but if I could leave one of my own judgments on South Africa on the table at the end of this discussion, it would be that South Africa is a very peculiar country in that it's very African in some respects and very not African in other respects. Um, this is a country which developed the nuclear weapon. It's a country that has a nuclear reactor. Um, it's a country which has research universities. Um, the AIDS rate is very, very high, but in other respects, the disease burden in South Africa is very, very low compared with uh, much of the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Food security is an issue economically in, in the way it is in the United States uh, of very poor people not being able to buy uh, sufficient amounts of food. But uh, there is nothing comparable with famine situations in many other sub-Saharan African countries. 
And one of the kind of oblique and uh, effects of the World Cup, which I'm really excited and interested to to look at uh, and to see what the effect of that will be, is other Africans looking at South Africa for the first time over a long, month-long period and actually saying, my God, this country has uh, motorways, this country has, you know, uh, streets with drainage, this country has police force which actually have police cars at work and, and helicopters. Uh, and so I, I feel that uh, in many respects, when we think about South Africa, it's much more relevant to think about a country like Brazil than it is to think about South Africa in relationship to, uh, say, Nigeria. And uh, so, so it's so the country of contrast. I mean, they are profound, and when you go to rural South Africa, it's very, very poor. Uh, but at the same time, if those people go on the bus, they could end up in a in a in a in a shopping centre which would rival even your shopping centres in Dallas. Well, you know, it, uh, I hear you, but then I look at say education. And it seems that South Africa has, I think it's quoted here in the World Competitive Survey, that South Africa is ranked at the bottom in, in, in math and science. Um, Chris asks, with limitations on South Africa's education, uh, how, will it, how will it affect its economic development? Um, I read in the report that uh, a chancellor at one of the universities said that uh, you know, the education system, uh, some people consider it a, a fraud because you can, can buy degrees. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd I, I like to know who that chancellor was because I, I, I feel that actually that Things are relative. I mean, uh, it's definitely, you know, looking at the glass half full or half empty. If you're looking at South Africa from the sub-Saharan African context, you'd say it's so far ahead that the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, even if it does well, will take 15 to 30 years to catch up with where South Africa is right now. And if you look at uh, this university in, in Johannesburg or Stellenbosch or the University of Cape Town, these are universities which are actually capable of competing uh, globally. And uh, the high school system in South Africa has made significant strides uh, in black areas um, since the end of apartheid. But obviously, they haven't made the strides as fast as people want. People want that education right now. They want it. Uh, they want the same economic opportunities that they see other South Africans have and um, so uh, I, I would actually uh, take issue with you. I, I think the education system in South Africa is, uh, from a developing world context, is pretty competitive. But how does this lead to its unemployment um, throughout the country? And, and I'm, I, I read that the unemployment in South Africa is. Uh, among the highest in the world at, at 25%, and maybe even higher than that, um, and enormous, again, this, uh, diversity um, uh, for, between blacks and whites with 30% unemployment for blacks and, and 6% for, for whites. Uh, and how does that compare, say, to some of the other nations in sub-Saharan Africa? Well, again, that's the, the sort of... Uh, Glass half full or half empty because 
If you look at Kenya, where I'm speaking to you from now, I mean, unemployment rate in Kenya is probably about 80 percent. Uh, so the, in, the formal employment rate would be about 20 percent. Now, obviously, not all of those 80 percent of people are truly unemployed. Many of those are young men who are street hawkers. Obviously, large numbers of people in the countryside are are you know farming their little plot of land, and then they might have a job every once or twice a week, which just brings in enough money to buy soap and kerosene and matches and, and simple sugar and salt and flour. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the sub-Saharan African context, South Africa is very, very far ahead. I mean, I think the problem in South Africa is that the white and Asian population and indeed the upper-class black population it's so rich, uh, and they have a lifestyle pretty much equivalent to a lifestyle of, of, of a similarly employed person in, in the United States. So it, 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 the gap is, is so large, and the, the resentment and the frustration is that much higher. And I think you're absolutely right. You have to look at it in context of what South Africa has achieved since 1994, uh, when really the civil service was majority white, and, and now they've been obviously making the, the changes. How, how smoothly has, has that gone, and have they been able to find enough skilled professionals to to maintain some of the important services that, that a government would provide, or are they too being uh, affected by what you, what you called or mentioned earlier, the brain drain? Well, I mean, I, now we're getting to uh, the really serious issue for South Africa. I mean, we should emphasize again that uh, if you had gone to any South African, if you have gone to Desmond Tutu uh, in the early 90s and you said, in 2010, South Africa will host Football World Cup and it will be peaceable and it will be professionally run and you'll have tourists from across the world who are really happy to come to South Africa and the country will be united racially behind that endeavor. If you had said that to them, and especially if you say it to an Africano conservative, they would have laughed. They would say, that's a pipe dream. That's not going to happen. The civil war will break out. The country will fall apart. It will fracture and, uh, and so on. So uh, that always has to be prefaced uh, before this negative that I'm going to talk about now. Uh, but clearly there is a very big concern among all thinking people in South Africa that South Africa, and I have to use this term, even though I love Africa and I live in Africa and I report in Africa, that South Africa is being Africanized, politically speaking. That Jacob Zuma is simply not up to the job. He's uh, creating a political system uh, which better resembles the patronage system of 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 the worst African societies. And... Um, and that the civil service, for all of the moral uh, uh, evils of apartheid, uh, the civil service structure was quite strong. Uh, if you wanted to get in, to engineer a road, to build a bridge, manage a prison, uh, manage water uh, sterilization projects, all of these kind of things that every country needs to have, and you need to have a budget, and you need to administer the budget, Correctly and and not pocket the money and not appoint your cousin 
because you, you think he might do you a favor, you know. And all of that is, is breaking down, um, unfortunately, uh, on, on the back of the, uh, of a rather corrupt, uh, uh, nepotistic, uh, African National Congress, uh, uh, system. And, uh, South Africa has yet to produce a very strong alternative politically to that system. And, uh, that, that's very worrying. And, and one of the biggest concerns for the country is that the civil service is Severely undermanned, and uh, the, the quality of people going into civil service is is going down. And more importantly, that uh, the, the morale of people is very very low. Um, I travelled with the South African military on a peacekeeping operation in Africa recently, and you know, in the evening over a couple of beers, you know, all of them, black, white. Uh, all of them were saying, we're emigrating, we're going to New Zealand to become policemen, or we're going to Australia, or we're going to go to Canada, um, uh, because they didn't see any future um, in their careers in South Africa, and, and that is uh, potentially devastating for the country. Well, in fact, I read this quote that President Zuma at one point recently said that uh, South Africa's civil service was the worst in the world. Uh, that may be so, but for the president to say it like that certainly cannot be much of a motivating factor. <laughs> yeah, I think we can agree that it's not the worst in the world. But yeah. um, I think Zuma, you know, is one of the key, I mean, it's almost a talisman of what we're talking about, you know, can Zuma re restrain his populist impulses? Can he, as a leader, exercise some sense of sobriety? Can he function within uh, the rule of law? Um, can he uh, appoint officials on, on a merit basis, regardless of their race, uh, whilst, of course, a striving for a redistribution of uh, of uh, income which would favor the uh, underclass black townships and rural areas i mean that that is one of those uh, outstanding questions that South Africans whenever they have a dinner party and even if they promise that the dinner party they're not going to talk about politics inevitably uh, by the time the main course comes, uh, that question comes up. Uh, one of our listeners, Eric, asked, and I think we've touched on it, but we might elaborate on it a bit more. One of the issues with South Africa that one reads about often is that most of the benefits of the end of apartheid go to a small, well-connected group of black business people and that there is little trickle-down effect to the masses. Is the World Cup changing any of that? And I guess to go a bit farther, the ANC seems to have an, an iron hold on, on South Africa's politics. Is there any other party that is maybe at some point going to be able to, to move and make a change? Well, obviously, we did have a breakaway from the ANC, but, uh, uh, and they've now moved in with Helen Ziller and, uh, and the predominantly white, uh, uh, Political group, opposition grouping, but but really uh, at the moment there's no other game in town than the ANC, and so the real question is whether the ANC uh, can 
as they were saying about Zuma, whether the ANC can police itself, reform itself, um, and uh, that is a, that's an outstanding question. And obviously, it's very disappointing to to so many South Africans, but also worrying to other people in Africa that even South Africa, with all of its advantages, can't seem to escape the uh, curse of Africa, which is a small elite uh, creating obstacles for the large majority of the population in order to economically benefit themselves. And, uh, you know, that that serves their interest, but it doesn't serve the interest of developing the nation. Let's let's talk about HIV AIDS because as I mentioned at the outset that is often the way South Africa is is, is first mentioned. Um, President Zuma has been much more public about uh, HIV tests and the use of, of condoms than his predecessor, um, and yet AIDS HIV is is still incredibly uh, prevalent in in South Africa. Um, one out of eight citizens uh, have been diagnosed with HIV. Uh, three million have already died, and the life expectancy has fallen in the last 20 years from 60 to under 50. Uh, whites age uh, 72 and blacks uh, age 47. Um, any progress being made made here? Yeah, I think a lot of progress. I mean, uh, I think um, when it, history is written. Uh, I mean, Manetsi Mbeki, uh, Zuma's, uh, predecessor, um, sorry, Tabo Mbeki, Manetsi is his brother, Tabo Mbeki, um, as president, I mean, he's a very, um, well-groomed politician, uh, and very acceptable to the business elite in South Africa. But when history is written, they will find him culpable for the deaths of half a million, a million, who knows how many South Africans because of his absurd AIDS denial and uh, the several years it took for uh, sensible South Africans to wake their president up to the, to the enormous death rates which were happening throughout the country. Uh, but Zuma, uh, as, as your listeners know, comes with his own sexual baggage and um you know the economists were were very um you know uh, uh libertarian and uh, i don't want to get into uh the president's sex life but the fact is that he set an enormously and continues to set an enormously bad example for south african men uh, uh not just by being polygamous but also by so uh, overtly uh, putting virility, male sexuality uh, in, into uh, into his sort of populist image, and uh, and uh, in the rape trial uh, was was settled, but uh, the um, the shower incident. If some of your listeners don't know this incident, this is an incident when. Um, uh, Mr. Zuma defended himself in court um, uh, against not having used a condom by saying that well, he'd taken a shower after having uh, sex. And, uh, you know, it's just a tragedy for South Africa uh, to have a president who uh, is almost an embodiment of, of, uh, 
what drives the very, very high age rate and uh, is seemingly incapable of setting um, any, any kind of goals on chastity or or or, or elevating the status of women. Um, uh, it, it's, it's very problematic. And again, you see the stark difference between the blacks and the whites with 14% of the black population uh, being diagnosed with HIV AIDS compared to 0.3% of the whites. Are people able, and when I'm asked this, I mean really the poor of the poors, um, are they able to receive the anti-retroviral treatments? Um, I think basically yes. I think the ARTs are very widely distributed. Obviously, um, healthcare in rural areas in South Africa still has a long way to go. It's still possible to go to uh, rural districts in the country and not find a clinic. And if you do find a clinic, it won't have uh, um, many of the medicines you need. But generally speaking, uh, the rollout of antiretrovirals has been pretty successful and the drug itself, medically speaking, is is more than holding its own. So I, I think we will see, um, regardless of the uh, what happens to the uh, infection rate, we will see the life expectancy rate creep higher in in in, in the coming years. You travel, of course, all all over Africa. How does this compare to some of the other countries? Well, in this area, um, at least, you can actually say that Southern Africa, and I include Botswana, which is a very stable and, and a, a extremely well-administered country, but that has an extraordinarily high age rate. Um, so, too, is Zimbabwe, um, not so well-administered. Um, uh, Namibia, pretty high. Uh, Mozambique, pretty high. So, uh, when you look at the age rate, um, you would say that uh, Southern Africa actually has that uh, among the highest age rates, if not the highest in Sub-Saharan Africa. We have a question from uh, Robert in Virginia. South Africa is widely known for its mineral wealth, but is there an emerging business, market, or industry that is not widely known? Well, I think one area that South Africa is uh, really uh, going to take off in is in, in digital technology, um, mobile phone sector, uh, internet sector. It, it, it has the undersea cables, which enable it to have a little bit faster, not quite as fast as what you have in the States, but it's, um, it's fairly competitive in, in, in the Southern Hemisphere for uh, internet speed. And it's got a lot of brains, so I, I would say in those creative areas of leapfrog technologies, it does pretty well. Um, other areas it's doing uh, fairly well in are uh, in uh, agriculture and uh, commercial agriculture, and you see uh, South African farmers are pushing um, further out into uh, uh, other African countries and taking their expertise with them. Obviously, tourism is an enormous sector in South Africa, and that's uh, booming as well and it's not really a sector which I mean Kenya has obviously safaris and Tanzania has safaris but uh, South Africa has learned the trick of actually leaving most of the tourist, tourism money 
uh, which arrives in the country, making sure it stays in the country. Um, so that, that's another sector which is quite strong. Um, uh, industrially speaking, uh, I don't know whether many of my listeners know, but South Africa is unique in Africa, apart from perhaps Egypt, in having a very large industrial manufacturing base. Uh, BMW, uh, the top BMW car plant in the world is in, in South Africa. It's, it's the top rated by the BMW company. Um, and that says a lot for the ability of uh, South Africa to actually build up some industry and, and provide the workers for the industry. And we've all enjoyed seeing these terrific pictures from television as well in magazines of the new hotels and restaurants that have opened uh, largely because of the World Cup. So I'm sure that one of the residual impacts of the World Cup will be increased tourism, or at least one hopes so. Yeah, definitely. And, and I have to say, I mean, obviously I live in Kenya and I'm, I'm foremost an advocate of Kenya, but I, I do feel that South Africa is a very... I mean, travel a lot, but you, you would find it very hard to find anywhere in the world, even uh, San Francisco, uh, which is as beautiful as uh, as Cape Town or, or the Cape area of South Africa. And there's tremendous diversity in the country. It's one of those countries, like the United States, which has desert, has mountains, even got a couple of ski hills, um, and uh, it's got jungle in Limpopo River. Um, it's got the Kalahari Desert. Um, it's got a lot of uh, stuff going on, so in that, in that sense, it's a great tourism destination. You know, we have about another 15 or 16 minutes left, and so I want to encourage our listeners to enter the auditorium and email us your questions. And let's talk a little bit now about South Africa's foreign relations, and particularly with 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 China. Uh, I, I read with great interest that uh, South Africa was faced with the same situation that President Obama faced a few months ago, when the Dalai Lama's visit with President Obama was postponed. Uh, the government of South Africa also prevented the Dalai Lama from entering South Africa to participate in a peace conference that was linked to the World Cup. Several um, South African leaders expressed their outrage, including the Nobel laureates uh, Tutu and, and former President F.W. de Klerk. Uh, Tutu even went so far as to say, we are shamelessly succumbing to Chinese pressure. Uh, give, give us a, your insights on China's relations in, with South Africa, and then go, go a bit broader, because we read so much about this, uh, some of the other African nations. Yeah, well, that was a great uh, Tutuism. I mean, uh, uh, Archbishop Tutu is, is one of the uh, special men of Africa, living conscience for, for African politicians and a constant thorn in their side. But um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, China is uh, the single biggest foreign player, uh, or, or we can say at least the single biggest new foreign player, because France and Britain uh, remain pretty large players in, in certain other parts of Africa, um, and Britain in particular is, is a very large trading partner with South Africa. Um, but uh, China, about 10 years ago, identified the African continent, and particularly the Af African continent's resources, uh, that the minerals, the, the, old, the iron ore and other ores, and um, uh, and also the ability to grow food, um, 
as key strategic um, uh, concerns for China, which it, it wanted to uh, secure. And uh, so China has assiduously, over the last decade, uh, ratcheted up its uh, involvement in Africa. And one of the um, clearest, almost comic ways of seeing the uh, increased influence of China is to look at the number of African countries which still retain diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Uh, I believe it was around 20 countries 10 years ago which had diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and now we're down to one or two, which of which I think one is Lesotho. So <laughs> you can see how China uh, has just gone from country to country uh, trying to grab resources. Uh, now, with directly between China and South Africa, the relationship is a little bit different because what China wants to do in South Africa is even to set up factories and to sell a lot of manufactured goods. In other parts of Africa, China is basically dumping uh, plastic buckets, uh, iron sheeting, cheap products uh, on, onto the African market, which, which uh, even with the transport cost from China, uh, uh, it's simply uncompetitive for African companies to compete with that. But with South Africa, it's a little bit of a higher level. But the Chinese push into Africa is one of the, the very biggest stories in, in, in the continent. And uh, there's no question that uh, in the next 20 or 30 years, China will be the single biggest foreign player in Africa. And unfortunately, the United States um, has been incredibly short-sighted. Um, uh, both the State Department... Uh, and American businesses, apart from um, truly global American businesses, particularly uh, Coca-Cola, uh, which is very sophisticated and very profitable in Africa, uh, there hasn't really been much interest from American companies, uh, except, of course, in the oil and gas sector. But you think there's maybe a backlash against China because what I've been hearing and reading is that China, just like you said, with the product dumping and so forth, that now there's a bit of resentment and and, and maybe uh, they won't have quite as much influence as as, as you might might suggest. You know what? I think that that I've come to the conclusion that that's a, a, a wee bit of um, wishful thinking <laughs> on the on the part of. Uh, Westerners who are hoping against hope against Chinese domination. The fact is that China is is so sophisticated now that that mostly is able to see the backlash coming before it comes and to accommodate it. Then they do that by um, uh, making the accounting of their companies very transparent. So they would take Price White, uh, Price Waterhouse, uh, you know, to to look at their books or all they do is by uh, buying up African politicians or African civil servants who are very key to pushing through deals or through public relations campaigns or simply through building huge amounts of infrastructure and giving it to excuse me giving it to African countries for, for free basically um, so of course in the long run it's not going to be for free because they will have to trade with China on China's terms, but uh, 
I, I don't see. I mean, you want always hear in Zambia and some other countries of of uh, of, uh, of some populist backlash against the Chinese, but uh, I, I I doubt we will see it um, becoming a defining factor. You know, most most recently we're seeing Brazil and Turkey uh, take a larger uh, role on the world stage. Uh, South Africa has has not really been that uh, that forward thinking and, and I'm looking say like at its relations uh, or the United States and the United Nations has, has wanted South Africa to take maybe a, a stronger role with uh, Zimbabwe and, and yet it refuses to um, what's the, what's the background on this well I mean I have to say it's truly pathetic it's, it's pitiful and uh, obviously uh, um, the economists we've written a lot about this over the years, but uh, it, it, it's something that needs to be poked at, prodded at, held up and banners. But the fact is that the ANC have put nostalgia and uh, the history of uh, of African liberation movements and uh, a curious um, emotional but not intellectual attachment to Leninist Marxist thinking, they put all of these things, um, comrade loyalty, above the uh, stability of the region, and even more... But are they concerned about refugees coming across their borders? Yeah, I don't think that's a huge concern. That's something that South Africa has always held up. You know, they have huge amounts of refugees. They've got several million Zimbabweans in South Africa already, you know. The country is pretty much been on its knees for the last five years and uh, many thousands of Zimbabweans have died needlessly uh, of, of disease or even malnutrition um, as a result of the utter ineptitude and, and spinelessness that one would have to say of, uh, of the uh, South African government on, the, on that particular issue you know obviously South Africa has been uh, able to, to play a more positive role in Africa on other issues but uh, when it comes to Zimbabwe and holding Robert Mugabe to account um, the situation in South Africa was so bad uh, within the ANC that it took the trade union movement in South Africa to, to lobby the government not to allow a shipment of arms to Zimbabwe uh, last year or the year before last um, and so, I mean, obviously I'm speaking informally now and to your listeners, but, but clearly this is a, be one of the, uh, the big blights on South African foreign policy, uh, since the end of apartheid. You know, many of the councils have had the privilege of hearing Nicholas Kristof speak and, he often talks about just the lack of attention that is placed on some of the humanitarian crises uh, in Africa. Um, do you think the focus on Africa from the World Cup, will it re-energize efforts to uh, alleviate some of these problems in the Congo or Zimbabwe or, or even Sudan, or will now people just sort of forget, continue not to focus on that and, and keep their eyes on South Africa? Well, you know... Uh... I'm not a particularly cynical man, but uh, for a journalist, but uh, <laughs> I have to say that uh, I, I I feel 
strongly for Africa uh, that it has been abandoned in many ways and that uh, when I go to Washington and you sit down with uh, State Department, very senior State Department officials or senior CIA officials, you know, there there is an acknowledgement that there has to be a certain amount of aid given to Africa and there is an acknowledgement that you need the bonos of the world to to stand up and that you need the Oxfams and the CARES and the Save the Children and, and the United Nations and so on. And they're all going to be there doing their thing. But the, the intellectual challenge of a continent which is doubling from 1 billion people to 2 billion people uh, within the next 30 years, which is the fastest urbanizing continent in the world, uh, which is at the bottom of every human indicator that there is, and whose biocapacity, that's the ability of the land to support human beings upon it, is collapsing as a result of climate change. I, I really feel like... Uh Hello? Hello. I think we've lost Jonathan. I uh, want to thank Jonathan for being with us today. Um, that's what happens sometimes when you're talking on cell phone to Nairobi. Um, want to, um, again, remind our listeners that they can go to The Economist, the July 5th edition, to read The Price of Freedom, written by uh, Diana and, and uh, many of her colleagues. Um, also want to uh, encourage you to go to our website at dfwworld.org to learn about the World Affairs Councils of America. We have links to all of the councils. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to spread the world about Global IQ with their friends and colleagues. You can also listen to archives at www.dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ and to learn more about upcoming discussion topics. So I said I want to thank Jonathan Legard again for being with us. And to remind our audience, if you are not already a subscriber, please do go today to theeconomist.com to start your subscription. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. And special thanks also to our friends at the World Affairs Councils of America. Stay tuned for more information regarding our next audio cast in July and others throughout the fall. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.